welcome to the Top Order podcast. This week in cricket, of course, some big cricketing news, the death of Shane Warne. You will find an episode specially dedicated to Shane Keith Warne in the podcast feed. But we're going to talk about cricket that's going on around the world, Australia, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, England starting in the West Indies, the Women's World Cup, um, and the death of Rod Marsh as well. All coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, boys, we'll start with a little bit of a roundup of what's going on in the world in cricket. We're going to start on a positive note. Women's World Cup has kicked off in New Zealand. We've got some fans in the ground so far, not seriously affected by COVID. No one's had to play with nine just yet, as far as I'm aware. Cracking first opening game, um, in, which was the the White Ferns, and then an England-Australia game that went down to the wire as well, um, and a host of other performances. But yeah, what's caught our eye in the Women's World Cup so far? Yeah, I mean, so we're recording this on a Tuesday night uh, just after the Australia-Pakistan game, which Australia won pretty comfortably. But, yeah, it's just been a great tournament so far, hasn't it? I mean, I, you know, I guess we'll have to talk about the the White Ferns against West Indies. It was, you know, such down to the wire. I think I, you know, I've made a few apologies recently on the, the podcast. I think I said, you know, listen out the next – by the time you listen this, the White Ferns will have hopefully won. They obviously didn't win that game. So, but And, uh, you know, we, we will see in time how, how crucial that is. But I think we just sort of should start by saying what an exciting tournament's been so far. It has been absolutely first class, this opening for four or five days of the Women's World Cup. The New Zealand-West Indies game coming down to the last over. That Australia-England game was, was, was awesome. It was so close. That that night, it's it, it must be said we had India um, against Sri Lanka a test match on one channel. We had Australia against Pakistan men's cricket on the other channel. I was absolutely glued to that Australia v England women's game, and I was sitting next to my wife who doesn't watch a lot of cricket, and I said, "Would you like to turn over to something else?" She says, "No, I want to see what happens at the end of this um, Australia England game." And I have been absolutely glued to this women's World Cup, and I have not given the test match between Australia Pakistan, which we will cover, and the test match between India and Sri Lanka, which we will cover, much shrift at all in the in the Baldwin household as far as viewing is concerned. Yeah, look, same conversation in my house. I asked my wife if she wanted to turn over to. Uh, Pakistan, Australia, and she probably <laughs> wa- walked out of the room. So, um, but no, look, all jokes aside, it was a fantastic game, and yeah, glued to it. Even if um, Sky Sports had a few scheduling issues, actually, um, you were kind of having to tune into the basketball in order to watch the cricket, the cricket to watch the basketball, <laughs> and I think the fencing if you wanted to watch the rugby. But anyway, we, we won't go into that. A, a lot of potential for spoilers, and one spoiler for us anyway, with the West Indies beating the the White Ferns in that first match. And I've actually been impressed with Bangladesh, even though they haven't actually gotten over the line mm. in those first few games against. So Africa and New Zealand as well. Um, they've, they've really put up a fight. Uh, what do you make of the White Ferns so far, Stu, through two games? Yeah, it, it hasn't been as good as I, I guess we hoped. And I, and I mean, you know, I, I suppose that New Zealand-West Indies game we should touch on uh, first. I mean, what a, what a game it was to, to come all the way down down to the wire. But you, when you think about the, the big moments in that game, even though Sophie Devine scored 100... The big people that you think about are first Hayley Matthews for scoring that 100 and, you know, just taking those wickets. seemed like any time she was coming on to bowl, something was going to happen. And then it's Deandra Dotton. And I just, I still am just boggled by how that even went, uh, took place. So, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen it, New Zealand needed 20 off the last two overs, seven down, I think we were. And then, and it seemed like uh, in that second to last over, we'd got the momentum. Katie Martin hit two boundaries off the last two balls. 
needed six off six to to win, and and it seemed like okay, great, like White Ferns are going to win. This is going to be a thriller. This is the exact perfect start to the World Cup. Talk us through the lead up to that last over. Before a ball's bowled, talk us through the setup of of Dotson coming on to bowl for that last over. Well, I was, you know, we were trying to figure out, I guess, who's going to bowl, and um, you know, I could see Selman, I think it was, warming up, and and I sort of thought, okay, look, yeah, she hasn't looked that troubling in this, you know, I think we'll be all right here. You know, Katie Martin's going well. Jess Hurst, Kerr's hit a couple of boundaries, but then <laughs> I guess you just sort of see out of the corner of your eye, Deandra Dotson just walk over to to Stephanie Taylor, the captain, and, and you're like what's going on here and yeah she just took the ball you know she reports out she just said give me the ball and uh and it paid off she i think uh taylor tried to talk her out of it sort of said oh look you haven't bowled you know you haven't, haven't bowled in the nets uh in this whole tournament she's had a shoulder injury in 2019 she's you know hasn't really been bowling hasn't bowled much uh i think she's bowled what do i put down here 11 overs in international cricket in the last three years and so, you know, I think Taylor's like, I don't think you should be bowling. And then, and she said, look, I'll take it up with the coach later if you if you want to, if if you want to have it, uh, you know, give me the ball. And uh, and if something goes wrong, I'll, I'll take it up with the coach later. And, and she just hit the mark every single delivery. And Courtney Walsh's reaction, actually, as it was happening on the on the boundary, <laughs> he was kind of sitting there in the wide brim and you could almost see on his face, he was like, I'm not sure this was in the uh, the, the planning meeting last night. But you don't you don't often get an, a lot of emotion from Cuddy Walsh, but he he was a little bit uh, bereft, I think. Of don't you love to see it? They just give oh, me the brilliant. ball yeah. and then I'll deliver for you. That, really that is, the, the, very rarely in your life do you get a moment where you see that kind of thing happen. And I, I actually was just so ecstatic for her to to take that chance and, and make the best of it. I, it was brilliant. And Baldy, a wee bit of symmetry the following night. So um, the England-Australia game, uh, Jess Jonathan um, coming on to bowl only a third over of the match in the final over. Nat Siver was going really well, but could, uh, Sophie Eccleston just couldn't get her back on strike and, um, you know, bowled a fantastic, fantastic over, including a unbelievable caught and bowled. Oh, that that whole England innings had me having conniptions. Honestly, I was talking to you and, and you were like, Austra- you know, Australia are going to win comfortably. And I'm, I'm not so sure here. Yeah, well, that's what, that, what we always do, Bordy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we, that's, yeah that's, that's, that's a fairly common sort of thread two of, of, of two of you just sort of say the other one's going to win all the time. But I mean, even even me, I was looking at that game and what England's up five for 170 something chasing 300 odd. And yeah, you'd. You didn't give them much chance at, at that point. But Nat Skiver's innings was tremendous, absolutely tremendous innings to even get them close. And they needed 16 to win. They had a little bit of momentum. And you just you just felt like if Siver got on strike to who, whoever was bowling, and I thought at least Perry was going to bowl the last over. And I thought if, if Siver gets on strike here and gets a couple away, you know, lucky edge or, or gets the ball over cover, it could be game England. But, man, to... to to bowl Jonathan, I turned to Nikki and I said, oh, I think Australia have made a mistake here because I think Jonathan could potentially go out of the ground now. If she goes out of the ground once, that becomes 10 off 5, mm. and then all of a sudden you can get twos and win the game. But that over from Jonathan, absolutely first class, superb, bowled into the legs, made it hard to hit, and that reaction catch, almost apologetic afterwards actually, just went, oh, oh, oh sorry, I've caught that. Bad luck. Um, and, and I guess the, the other factor here is just the scores that we're seeing in this Women's World Cup. So I'm pretty sure that both of those would have been record run chases in women's ODIs if they'd have yep. um, been pulled off. So we didn't quite see history on those two nights, but certainly saw uh, two historic games. 
So just looking forward uh, in the tournament for the Australians in particular, I was really um, really impressed by their, their top order, the Australian top order. They've been good for a long time, but they just look so mature and established, and you feel like they're going to do that every innings. You don't see a collapse coming. Mm. And Australia have backed that up against Pakistan this afternoon. Pakistan got to 190, probably 30 or 40 more than I think Australia would have liked. And if you want to be critical of the Australian team, I think they, their bowling, even in the warm-up game against New Zealand, conceded a lot of runs. And I think Australia will look back on their first two performances and think we've probably conceded more runs than we needed to. But you're absolutely right, Raj. Their top order of of Healy, Rachel Haynes, Beth Moody, Elise Perry, and then... And you can't forget Meg Lanning batting at three. I mean, she her record, I think she averages close to 100 in Tauranga. Unbelievable record. So those those four or five in the top order are just uh, are locked and loaded, ready to go. And then you back that up with Talia McGrath, um, Ash Gardner when she comes back from COVID, and Annabelle Sutherland in that sort of lower order. And that's it's a really, really powerful unit. And Australia can bat right the way down if they need to. And, and looping back to New Zealand, Bangladesh, that you mentioned Bangladesh before, they're a real challenge for New Zealand. I've seen actually, you know, I mean, we're, I, I think we're incredibly lucky to get that game on. Um, you know, I, I've seen comments to the Bangladesh side today coming out, it's basically saying they didn't think that it should have gone on. And um, it's actually hard to argue with them in, in many cases. I mean, you don't want to see a, a, a game get called off and, and especially in this World Cup in particular, because I feel like there are many, many sides fighting for that those semi-final spots. And if New Zealand had had a rain off there in a, in a game where, you know, I know Bangladesh did get probably more than we would have hoped, but that, that was a game where I think New Zealand were the better side. It's hard to argue against that. So... Yeah, very, very crucial win for New Zealand. It would have been a disaster, wouldn't it, if they if they hadn't had been able to get on for that after losing to the West Indies. But, I mean, my counter to that, should they have been playing, I mean, we've all played cricket in those similar conditions all the way around. That That's just how we play in New Zealand. And I think that factored into the decision in terms of getting on. And, and it was a great game of cricket. My question to you is, uh, you, Stu, is after the first two games uh, with West Indies putting on, you know, 250, 260, and then the start that the Bangladeshis got, they were 70 off about, what, nine overs, 10 they, overs? They were, they were at 10s after three. They looked they looked like they were taking New Zealand's pace attack to, to pieces there in yeah. the first four or five overs. Are there any concerns there with the New Zealand bowling attack at the moment? I think there has to be. I mean, you you think about, um, I've been very excited, I guess, about what's been happening in this India, in the lead up in the India series. And then obviously we talked a bit about what they did against Australia. I guess the that that is all, when you, when you actually take a step back, they're chasing huge scores, which means the bowling's not been going that well. So, you know, I think it's, it is a worry. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you look at that first game and... I think a lot of people will be asking questions about that team selection. There was no Hayley Jensen. There was no Frankie Mackay. People have already been asking questions about why is Fran Jonas in the side ahead of Lee Kasparik. And, you know, I think those questions will continue until, unfortunately for Fran Jonas, it, you know, and it shouldn't really fall on her. Unfortunately for her, though, she's the one that, that people feel shouldn't, you know, maybe shouldn't be in there and, and Kasparik should be. But I actually, you know, I, I think what happened in that second game is that those spinners have to play. Frankie Mackay has to play every, every, game. every game because, yep. and, and people think of her um, in many cases in New Zealand in the Super Smash as an opening Spencer, batter yep. and, and all of that. But she's proved in that India series and, and in that Bangladesh game 
um, that she's just going to be a really crucial bowler for us in this mm. tournament. And and spin has been the answer really for New Zealand. It's been it's been Kerr, it's been Frankie Mackay, it's been Satterthwaite, and I thought Satterthwaite was really really good in that Bangladesh game. She kind of took the momentum and wrested it back for New Zealand because Tahuhu and and Jess Kerr were a little bit expensive early doors, and and it feels like when pace is on for New Zealand, it's 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 playing into the hands of the opposition a little bit. Whereas if if you you're bowling Kerr, you're bowling Mackay, you're bowling Satterthwaite that is advantage New Zealand from a bowling point of view for mine. Yeah, I think we've just got to lean into it, really. Um, and, I mean, you know, we're going to get to see it. I mean, what, this podcast is probably going to come out maybe on Thursday-ish time, New Zealand time, and we're going to be playing India in, in, on Thursday. And th- that it could be as good as a quarterfinal, you know, this early in the competition. We've, we've really, we cannot afford to be one and two in a tournament that's going to be this tight. And, yeah, I think we just have to lean in to that, that spin and, and, and really go for it. And look, look before we move on from New Zealand and the White Ferns, I, th- I do just want to give a, a shout-out to Susie Bates. An amazing uh, summer, just continued again. You got run out, uh, really unlucky way to get, get run out, backing up in that first uh, game, but then scored 79 not out against Bangladesh and, and actually was the fastest woman to, to ever reach uh, 1,000 ODI World Cup runs. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, huge, huge effort from her and uh, and playing at home and stuff. So, yeah, I think she's going to be a crucial cog for us going forward. Well, for those of you listening around the world, it's March here in New Zealand. The weather, I can feel it in my bones, is just about to start to change. Our summer um, is coming to an end. So great that that game was on today. Let's just hope the weather holds over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks for the sake of the tournament. Let's move across to a centre wicket practice that's going on in Ralpindi um, at the moment. <laughs> day five of Australia, um, Pakistan. We've bemoaned the lack of warm-up for uh, batters and bowlers alike in Test cricket but um, Pakistan have, have put on a pretty decent practice wicket here for this first test in Raul Pindi boarding. Oh, well, I, I was just going to jump in and say, look, I mean, we often say, oh, well, look, we can't record on the on the fifth day because we don't know what's going to happen. But oh, I think we know. <laughs> I, think I, we knew, I think we knew about day two of this test that it was going to be uh, a draw, didn't we? Oh, what a good batting wicket. If you ever wanted to bat Steve Smith and Manus Lubbershone back into form and, and put paid to my to my bold <laughs> prediction of them averaging under thirty in the series, uh it would be this it would be this wicket. I mean, let's have a look at the state of play now. Four seven six for four declared and hundred and eleven and Nelson for none. Oh, it could all could be all over. Could they could lose ten for on Nelson. They could lose ten. It would be the first time that's ever happened. And Australia four five nine all out. I mean, it has been an absolute batting paradise for for both sides, really. But Pakistan have made the best of the conditions. Australia, new ball attack hasn't fired. They haven't taken wickets with the new ball. Both um, stands for Pakistan. I think if I'm right in saying century stands in the first innings, one for 105 and now none for 111. And, and you know, Imam Haq and Abdullah Shafiq have just put Australia's opening ball attack to the sword. You could say what you like about selection and whether or not Australia should have played two spinners and whether or not they shouldn't have bowled Travis Head on the on early in day day one. You know, he bowled three overs inside the first 17 and bowled before Cameron Green. All the rest of these things that the media and, and pundits have been talking about. But the fact of the matter is Australia's bowling attack has not looked like taking a wicket for most of this test match. Do you honestly think that you can take anything from this game, though? Do, like, Are you actually concerned? Because... Pakistan's t- team hasn't looked like taking a wicket necessarily either because it's just a, a road. What I've taken from this game is that I actually want to play cricket again. Uh, <laughs> I would love to bat on that wicket <laughs> for five days. It looked like um, as Ali was going to bat five days on that <laughs> wicket um, during his innings. But it's very hard to take something from this game aside from the fact that 
Australia is going to, well, Australia and Pakistan have spent a lot of time in the field. Their bowlers have bowled a lot of overs. Mm. Um, that that could, you know, be something that is a difference maker later on down the track. And, and do you think um, that Pakistan are going to look to do anything different from a pitch point of view in, in the second test? Is it going to benefit anyone to actually try and produce a result wicket here? Or do you think that they will try and just have a war of attrition here with Australia? Their batters are in great form at the moment. I, I, I would if, if I'm Pakistan and I'm looking at draw first, win later, lose last. I would be tempted to to produce a pretty similar wicket because the spice that you add to the wicket to assist Shaheen Sharafridi is also going to assist Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins. Mm. You know, so Australia have got three absolute weapons in terms of that ability to exploit any kind of seam movement or any excess bounce. I don't think that Pakistan will want to play into Australia's hands. Noman Ali got six for in the first innings against Australia and looked like, you know, he was probably the most challenging or or threatening of, of those bowlers. I don't think they're going to give Australia any any leeway at all. I think they'll be looking to jag a result if they can, if they continue to win the toss and bat first. I will say I did think uh, Australia had opportunities in the first couple of sessions there was a couple that didn't quite carry to slip off Pat Cummins when he first came on and Nathan Lyon um Nathan Lyon when he was when he was uh bowling there was a couple of chances off him notably down the leg side leg slip and behind not given as well uh not given but not reviewed either so you can't you can't um take that you can't you take that away from and to be fair MML Huck was on about 140 at that at that stage so um yeah look I, I think that there was opportunities for Australia early on but look they were half chances at best I I hope that we see a pitch that will either have a bit of live grass on it to start with or start to deteriorate towards the fifth day because uh, in my opinion these pitches even though we've had five days of cricket they're just as bad as the pitches where we've had two days of cricket on they're worse I think they're way worse they're boring (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's boring isn't it isn't it honestly I've watched barely any of this test I watched the start of it and I I think um, Lion bowled his first over and I messaged you guys because he he ragged it miles and I was like oh geez my prediction here that spin's not going to play much of a part in the outcome of this series is is a disaster but that just hasn't hasn't produced uh, wicket taking uh, pitches. I'm also very interested to see how Nathan Lyon comes back to this because I I actually did watch a lot of the especially the first innings, just the way they were coming down the wicket to him and the other Australian spinners and just depositing them all around the park. Mm. Uh, there's going to have to be a change of strategy there somewhere. Mm. Well, yeah, well, Lyon going at threes in an innings that didn't go anywhere near threes, and then Manus getting taken for over fours. It's uh, it's worrying signs for that Australian spin contingent. Well, guys, before we move on, there is breaking news in that test match um, as we are recording here um, on a Tuesday night. It's drinks, fellas, and it's 111 uh, for none. I think they should all just take drinks and take some long drinks now and and just walk off. I think I saw someone say uh, this could yesterday say this could be the first test ever where both captains just decide to pull stumps after day four. Yeah, look, it probably won't happen, will it? Because uh, uh, if one thing is for sure with the ICC, common sense is not common. Um, let's move on to um, another series taking place, India-Sri Lanka. Uh, marginally more exciting, um, <laughs> what one, one would say, but um, a, a big draw in that first test match in Mahali. India amassing 574 batting first, but then they have knocked over Sri Lanka cheaply um, twice for 174 and 100. 
178 following on. Um, yeah, they, they can't do any wrong at the moment, can they? Yeah, actually, unfortunately, I was going to start there with a negative. I'm actually very disappointed with Sri Lanka, actually, because they were in the dry, or not the driver's seat, but they were definitely in the game when Virat Kohli was dismissed and Treyas Iyer were dismissed uh, halfway through day one. It was like four one. for 160 or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah four then, for 175 when Vihari was dismissed in the 46th over of that first innings on day one. And then Rishabh Pant's just come in and, and show you why India have so much faith in him and the way he plays mm. to absolutely turn the game on its head uh, and really take India to stumps in a very powerful position on day one. And then your man... Uh, Ravi Jadeja, the memes going around about him saying that, you know, asking to get him knighted and things like that. Uh, this 175 was great to watch. Really good batting. I saw it's uh, the first, you know, the first play ever to, to score 150 and take nine for in the match. He obviously would have been, would have made for a much neater uh stat if uh, if he'd taken that extra wicket and, and taken 10 for, for the match and scored 150 plus but yeah geez uh, I think he's now got enough runs to, to be in your Hall of Fame Baldy so I, I think uh, you know yeah next, look out there's going to be some revisions next, there's going to be round. some there's going to be some big revisions Jadeja comma uh, his performance was just unbelievable and those two Jadeja and Ashwin we're privileged to watch those guys go about their business for India and you can say what you want about the conditions and whether or not they suit India and what and what have you. But you have a look at that batting lineup. Five for two to eight. They ended up five seven four. So their bottom five wickets. Traditionally for India, it has been a case of you get five, they're almost all out. But they've put on three hundred and fifty for their last five wickets. And you have a look at Punt ninety six off ninety seven, Dadeja one hundred and seventy five off two twenty eight, and then Ashwin sixty one off eighty two, all striking at seventy five or, or, or better. In test cricket, that's wonderfully entertaining stuff. So you can say what you like about India having the better of the conditions or, or whatever, but they have still gone and put on an absolute entertainment spectacle for the punters that are coming to that ground and are watching on television. From from a Sri Lankan point of view, what, what do you think they can take away from this test? I know uh, they probably didn't bowl well when it came to the difference was the spin bowling and the quality of spin bowling and that that is going to happen in India I don't see that changing uh, their batting Nisanka was left stranded in the first innings there uh, carrying his form through from Australia well what do, what does Sri Lanka take out from from this game well I think you have to just take those small tidbits right you have to take those those moments uh, and you have to take Nisanka and, and the fact that he batted yeah I thought he batted really well in that first innings and then you, and also the spinner. I think the spinners just have to look at at what uh, Ashwin and, and Jadeja do, and, and I guess they, they had their moments, didn't they? Embledinia, he he's had his moments the the past twelve months. I think the, those times where he bowls those deliveries, and he, they're just unbelievable. And uh, he bowled he bowled Coley, didn't he? And and uh, you know with a real cracker. And I think you just have to say, look, we ha- we can do this. We were in a situation where we were competing with this team, but we just have to do it for longer and over and over and over again, and, and that's why India is so good. Yeah, well, they can just hope that Axel Patel doesn't come in because he's got the better stats than Ravage. Jadra's a left officer, hasn't he? And I think I think he is coming back in for that second test, so, you know, whether he replaces Jayant Yadav, you know, who knows. But oh, wow. <laughs> I, I have a question for the panel in terms of uh, India and, and their success at home. Who, who do you think will be the next team to win an away series in India? Because 
I, I honestly just cannot see a team, if they're going to produce pitches, and, and I'm not saying that this was a disastrous test wicket or anything, and, and even the test wickets that they produced against New Zealand, they, they, you know, we've had this debate many times about pitches and, and, what, and all of that kind of stuff. We'll but, steer away from that. Well, let's yeah, just focus uh, on who is going to be. Well, because I looked back at the stats. So England was the last team that beat India in a, in a series away from home. That was in 2012. That was a situation where uh, they had Panasar and Swan and actually won that series 2-1. Uh, India's spinners were, were in Ashwin in the early part of his career, Harbhajan probably at the, you know, nearing the end of his career, or not not quite the end, but in that sort of level, and Prayanoya was was in that side as well. And and so, you know, probably if you look back at, at history, Panasar and Swan is a reasonable comparison to, to that kind of spin attack. But, and, you know, even you have to go to 2004 before that to, when Australia won 2-1 in that series, they actually won with Gillespie, McGrath and Kasprovich doing most of the most of the damage. A little bit of Funky Miller in there as well, from memory. No, oh, I don't, oh, don't know. No, no, that was Michael Clark got his six for nine in that series, but that was actually in a loss. But, you know, I just look around the world and I can't see a spin attack that could actually even take it to, you know, and, and challenge India. Can anyone see an, a side that could beat them? Look, at, at this stage, no. And I think the the other factor is that they've got such a decent seam attack as well at the moment that even if a team come with a decent spinner, then they can still play on a good cricket wicket and mix it with the likes of Jasper Brummer and, and Siraj um, in, in the side as well. So, look, you know, cricket's not paid on paper though, is it? So you, you, you never know. England weren't expected, I don't think, to win in 2012. But for, as you mentioned, the emergence of Graham Swan and, um, probably Kevin Peterson played like a god in that series as well, having been, I think, reintegrated into the side after um, his indiscretions with uh, Andrew Strauss and texting South Africa and telling him how to get them out and all that kind of jazz. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it doesn't look like there's anybody that could mix it with India at home at the moment. I'll throw a, I'll throw a bold prediction in there. South Africa. South Africa have got as good a pace attack as India have, and they've got reasonable spinners. Maharashtra. Yeah. Yep. So I would say that South Africa could be potentially the, the team that could take it to India in India, but it won't be for a couple of years yet. It won't be until those guys like Elgar and Urvea and, and those guys that we saw in the New Zealand series actually come of age and, and score big hundreds and bat for long periods of time in challenging conditions. They'll need to win in Sri Lanka or Pakistan first and then go to India and do it, but I think it could be them. could be Pakistan. Who knows? Not, very, not not many, if any, as they say. Yeah, I guess from 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 that point of view, they, they probably are well-suited there. I think they probably are lacking a little bit with the spin, but the, the biggest issue I have with South Africa there is they just don't have the batsmen to, to match it with those That's Indian why they're batsmen. a couple of years away, right? Yeah, but, they're, uh, they're a few years away from being able to be there. To answer your question, I don't see anyone either. Lippy. No. Until, until somebody, uh, a team develops uh, a team that has two or three great good, great spinners, because that's India's fullback position. You saw in that first test against England where England were there, they prepared a pitch that was actually all right to bat on, had a little bit of pace in it. As soon as they saw England start to um, turn up for that, they just reverted back to that spin, and that's what they'll always go back to um, because they know they have the ascendancy there. Guys, we'll move quickly across to North Sound in Antigua where um, England are about to take on the West Indies. We've kind of done a preview of this already. Um, lots more questions for England with the injury of Ollie Robinson, probably the main um, talking point leading into um, into that game. I don't know if there's much more to say given we've done a, a pretty decent um, preview, but that sort of post-Anderson broad 
England Red Bull reset about to get um, underway and without much fruit from it, I would have thought. The one thing I did see is that um, it looks like, yeah, Robinson won't play and uh, all reports were saying, you know, this could obviously be wrong now by the time you're listening to this podcast, but all reports were saying that Overton was going to come in and and play and and take the new ball. And I just thought that was... uh, I mean, I, I don't know. We've done. We've. I feel like we've done the Anderson and Broad and why aren't they there and all this sort of stuff to death. But, but surely if you're moving on from them, you're not moving to Overton as your new ball bowler. You must be moving to, uh, you know, Mahmood or, or someone like that. You, I don't know. I just I'm I'm baffled by this whole situation. So maybe it is best to just move on unless you've got anything, Pinksy. No, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I, I've I've got a, I've got a little I've got a little factoid, a little statoid. Uh, Alex Lees is going to play in this test series, it looks like. He's going to be the 22nd man to open the batting for England since the retirement of Andrew Strauss. Jeez. That's that's a lot. No one's no one's averaged more than Joe Denley, 31.33. So as much as the dentures were were maligned, he's he's been the best opener. And also a recall in t- terms of speaking with uh, speaking about opening batters, a, rec- a recall for the West Indies for John Campbell as well. And we're also likely to see Jaden Seals in this series. I'm I'm excited about watching him bowl. He looks like uh, in combination with Alzari Joseph could be one that uh, could be exciting for the West Indies. So I've got, a, I've got a question for you, Binksy, and it revolves around uh, that great New Zealander, Ben Stokes. <laughs> what do you want to see from him in this Test Series? I know he's been... Do you want to see him bowling more often, getting through the overs? Do you want to see him scoring hundreds? Obviously, those all sound great, but realistically, what do you actually want to see from, from Ben Stokes in this series? Yeah, look, I think he's one of those players that needs to be able to contribute with both bat and ball um, to, to feel as if he's in the game and to feel as if he um, is contributing. He's come out and said he was disappointed with the Ashes in terms of his own personal performance. Didn't feel as if he was at the races from a fitness perspective, which I know he prides himself on. And look, the reality was he, he wasn't really a chance to play. And then I think, you know, um, I, I'd imagine to an extent he wanted to play and, and secondly had his arm twisted a little bit to get on the plane to, to be... Um, a, you know, a lieutenant for his skipper and great friend, Joe Root. So, uh, look, he's batting at five in this series by the looks of things. Um, Average-wise, he's, he's around 35. So, he, you know, it's not like he's he's pulling up trees in terms of his statistics. So I, I'd like to see him really cement um, a spot um, at number at number four, actually. So I'd like to see him kind of go, do you know what? My bowling is a little bit of a bonus, a little bit like Jax Callis probably was for South Africa back in the day. Yes, I, I might end up with a couple of hundred test wickets, but I want him to see him push that average closer to um, and in excess of 40 by the time that uh, he finishes up with a red ball. You know what I reckon the key is here? Ben Stokes does not do donkey work with the ball. That Australian Ashes series, they Ben Stokes was asked to do donkey work with the ball and like come in and bang it in short and bowl all these like long spells of, of stuff that like that that is that is energy that he needs to be able to use as a batter. I think England need to be smarter about how they use Ben Stokes. Yes, he's a partnership breaker. Bring him on for a few overs and if he's going to try a little bit, but that kind of Neil Wagner mode of of high energy, high expenditure, fast bowling. I just don't think is the right formula for England. If they've got a guy in Mark Wood that can do that and be intimidating, get get someone else in there that can do that, whether it's Mahmood or Stone or... But that's or the who, problem. England if have they used don't... Joffre Archer, Ben Stokes and Mark Wood to do that kind of work when none of them, from a fitness perspective, have really been cut out to, to do that. To but anyway, operate in that way, yeah. Let, let's, not, let's not talk about England anymore. Don't want to talk about England anymore. <laughs> 
I'll jump in then quickly, uh, you know, seizing an opportunity to jump in and, and just talk some Plunkett Shield. I, I just wanted to, to give a massive shout out to, to Auckland and, and actually the Eden Park ground staff who we, you know, had the, the pleasure of talking to uh, a week or so ago when we were, were commentating the, the women's T20 final and um, just unbelievable the, the way that this Auckland batting lineup's been going. Um, we just seen a game, a Plunkett Shield game, where they, they absolutely just demolished Canterbury, which doesn't bring me much pleasure to say. But, you know, Martin Guptill scored 195. Robbie O'Donnell scored 200. That batting lineup with Worker, Guptill, Phillips, Chapman, O'Donnell, it's just been, you know, pulling up trees, as, as you guys would say. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. They're going to look, they're going to be very hard to stop for, for the rest of this uh, New Zealand domestic season if, uh, if they keep putting on those runs. And finish the podcast on another sombre note. Obviously, a couple of deaths in the Australian cricketing fraternity. Um, look, I guess a, a couple of icons of the Australian game. Shane Warne obviously passing away in Thailand, and there's a special episode um, on his legacy. But Baldy, I know you wanted to say a little bit about uh, Bacchus, Rodney Marsh, mm. um, who also passed away at the age of 72 earlier this week. Yeah, a little bit of breaking news before we do. I've just received a text from my dad, who is 65 this year in a couple of months, and will have been watching Test cricket for about 58 years of those 65. And he's just sent me a text that said, this is the most boring Test match that I have ever watched in my entire life, without question. <laughs> I am assuming he's talking about the Australian-Pakistan test. Yeah, so drinks is, drinks is finished. Maybe drinks um, are still going. Well, That's, could be the problem. At my dad's house, drinks could still be going at this point. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about a couple. I mean, we, we've talked about Warren, and, and you will have seen listeners or heard listeners, many tributes to Shane Warren and our own uh, humble musings on the life of Shane Warren will be in your podcast feed, and please do check that out. But I wanted to touch on, on Rod Marsh because I think in the outpouring of emotion and response to Shane Warne's passing, we shouldn't forget that Rod Marsh was an absolute stalwart of Australian cricket, both from a playing point of view, where he was a tremendous wicketkeeper and evolved as a wicketkeeper. You know, started from very hum- humble beginnings. I think they called them iron gloves when he first came onto the, the test cricket scene, which is not great if you're a, a wicketkeeper, but, you know, Court, Court Marsh Bold Lily became synonymous with Australian cricket in the 70s and 80s. And before Healy, he was one of the best Australia had ever produced um, in terms of in terms of pure gloveman by the end of his career. But not just as an administrator. I mean, he was the brains trust behind the Australian Cricket Academy in Adelaide. He was a wonderful administrator for the game, um, both from that point of view and also from a, from a West Australian cricket point of view. And, and he was a beloved figure in Australian cricket circles. And I think Australia are reeling from the twin losses of both Rod Marsh and Shane Warne. But the Rod Marsh one, I think, affected a lot of Australians and a lot of Australian cricket players and and cricket personalities very deeply. So we want to give credit and and pay our respects to Rod Marsh as a cricketer and as an icon of, of the Australian cricket team. Yeah, and look, I also just want to add, he had a big impact on the English game as well. Um, um, also, at 74 when he died, not 72, as I earlier said, so apologies for, for that. But yeah, he um, was director of the England and Wales uh, Cricket Board or ECB National Academy um, in that really pivotal period for England. You know, they'd got their arses handed in to them for um, as long as Margaret Thatcher was in charge and beyond. And then um, he took, uh, you know, the helm in 2001 through to September 2005 as director of that academy and certainly played a really, really big part in the identification of that pace attack that 
um, played such a big part in that 2005 Ashes and and made world cricket a more interesting place um, in the uh, in the aftermath of that. So, yeah, Valet um, to to, to yeah, Rod we'll miss Marsh. we'll miss Rod Marsh absolutely, and it's sad to see him go. Well, guys, that does just about wrap up this week in cricket for um, Mar- the early part of March 2022. As we said, we have had our musings, uh, long musings on the life of Shane Keith Warne in our podcast feed over the course of the last week or so. So please do go and have um, a listen to that. No shortage of content on that subject, but um, our humble views um, in your podcast feed. And of course, stay tuned as we do start to pick up some of the other series the culmination of that Women's World Cup um, here on home soil in New Zealand, England starting their series in Antigua this week as well, and a whole host more cricket as well, including India um, and Sri Lanka continuing um, their series as well. But for now, it's good night and good bless from us all here in Auckland. Um, Stay safe and we'll see you soon.